Welcome to Parent to Parent, real-life tips to raise resilient kids. A podcast from Communities That Care of Greater Downingtown. This is Chrissy Jambowski, and I have two young kids. And I'm Beth Ann Sinelli, and I have two adult kids. Together, we'll meet with experts and fellow parents to share personal stories and provide support and actionable steps to strengthen your family and raise healthy kids. We're glad you're here. Let's get started. Welcome to Parent to Parent. This is Beth Ann. And this is Chrissy. And today we have our first return guest to the podcast. Very exciting. Um, Joe Myers from Crime Victim Center of Chester County is here today with us to talk about everything to do with relationships. So how we as parents can support our kids to have healthy relationships and healthy friendships. And also we are going to talk a little bit about um, Sexual Assault Awareness Month because this episode will be coming out right before the month of April and that is the the month that this is an awareness month for. Um, so lots to discuss today. Joe, welcome back for round number two. Thank you so much. I am <laughs> I am truly honored to be your first return guest. I had a lot of uh, fun talking last time, and I'm, I'm grateful that you invited me back for today. Oh, and also, yes, yeah, so our, the first episode that we had Joe as a guest for, and I can link it in the show notes, was um, a really great conversation all about bullying and cyberbullying. So this is kind of along the same lines because it's, yeah. it's relationships, communication skills, those types of things. Great. Thanks, Joe. Thanks for joining us again today. Thanks, Chrissy. Um, so Joe, just to kind of get started, um, kids start really early on navigating friendships and the world of best friends and sort of friendships and cliques. And then they move into the, the dating relationships. Um, and I'm not even sure, do they, like, is the word dating even like currently use, I, I have like no idea anymore. Um, but what age do kids start saying that um, they're dating someone? And what does that healthy relationship, you know, look like if we're introducing this concept of dating uh, to our children? Oh, that's a, that's a great question, Bethann. I mean, all over Chester County, me and my team, we travel, we talk to students. When we talk about like romantic relationships, we often start in like middle school up into high school and then into the university age. Uh, are the kids in middle school, I always ask like, what does dating look like? You know, what do you use that word? What do y'all do when you're dating? And we get mixed answers all over the place. Like some kids hang out in the park. Some kids go like, you know, for me, like, you know, mall ratting and go hang out at the mall or go to a movie. But they're like, yeah, hey, we hang out at each other's houses. It's just somebody you see more often. So sometimes it's like they put the capital D dating on the relationship. And sometimes, I don't know, it's, it's kind of dependent on where you are. Hmm. All right. Let me ask a follow-up question, though, to this. Um, do things such as, you know, texting and cell phone, like, is that, so, okay, say go to hang out in the park or, you know, go to the mall or whatever that might look like. But I, I have this feeling that the cyber stuff, you could be like seeing somebody or dating because you're using your cell phone mm -hmm. to connect to them. Mm -hmm. Is that a thing like that? Or is yeah, definitely. I mean, we see a lot of young folks, like, you know, how do they interact when they're in a romantic relationship? Or we'll ask them, like, what do they see in their friends who are dating? And they'll be like, oh, they're always texting each other. They're always snapping each other. They've got like a big, long snap streak and stuff like that. Um, kind of those behaviors that we sometimes see in adults too, right? People talking to each other, right. people really connecting with each other. Um, and some of them will even connect using some of those, what we would consider adult dating apps like Tinder or Bumble, but they're not using them oh. for the same type of dating that like, oh. that like we, I think sometimes get a little nervous because we're like, oh, teens hooking up, but uh -huh. like they're meeting each other. Now they can be connected across school districts. Like it widens their dating pool, which can be really positive, especially for students like LGBT students who may feel isolated in their home communities. They can have a wider connection to people, you know, that they can access online. Yeah. Oh, that's just really interesting. Sort of that larger geographic space that we were limited to because clearly you only saw the folks that you saw in your school community every yeah. day. Whoever oh. I can convince my parents to drive me to or drop me off yes. at a mall. I spent a lot of hours in the King of Prussia Mall. I so did I. Yeah. Oh, my God, Joe. I know, right? And I haven't been to a mall like now in 100 years. Uh -uh. Back then, going to the mall was a big deal. It's crazy. Big deal. And is there a piece of this, too, just thinking of like the social media and texting and things where 
that plays a role in like how you communicate in your relationship. Like, oh, they commented on my post or, oh, they liked this thing that I posted or whatever. Is that like a whole nother kind of place, I guess, or location to show like how people are connected to each other and those, t- do you know what I mean? Like, does that make sense? Yeah. I th- it's, it's kind of a part of, I, I like to say that for young people, social media is the air they breathe. So it's not disconnected. It's another facet of their relationship where they might see that person in school, spend time with them, but then they yeah, comment, tag each other and stuff, share things, memes back and forth. They can be texting, they can be FaceTiming or video chatting. It's really, there's no disconnect, right? It's just a part of their life is all in one place and that place is always near their phones. So it's it's definitely a part of it. Yeah. Uh, it's really interesting stuff. So if you're a parent kind of in your, your child that might be, you know, teens, possibly tweens, maybe in middle school, right? And say like, oh, we're going out or we're hanging out or whatever it is. If you're a parent observing this, what would, you know you know, in air quotes, like what would a healthy relationship, you know, appear or present uh, happening? What would that look like? So we always teach young people that they should be receiving the positive qualities that they want from their relationships. So we talk about respect. Respect can be respecting opinions, respecting feelings, respecting boundaries in somebody's body. Uh, They should never feel pressured in a relationship the time that they're spending with that person should be generally positive. Like folks might get into disagreements, might get into arguments, but there should be healthy practices for resolving those conflicts. You know, talking things out, hearing each other's feelings, empathy building, uh, and then like recognizing when a young person wants to be and when doesn't want to be in a relationship and that that's always okay. So we always recommend honesty. We recommend communication. We recommend recognizing each other's boundaries and talking about these things with each other. Uh, For adults, that can be really difficult for us because When we're talking about romantic relationships, a lot of parents I talk to will say like, like, oh, I don't want my kid dating until they're 35 or like, you know, that, that goofy line that Mm -hmm. parents say sometimes, which I get, right. We want to protect these young people for as long as possible. But at the same time, if we have that rigid attitude of like, no dating, no this, that creates a barrier where now children think they have to no longer talk to their parents about these relationships or these interactions, which cuts them off from help if they might need it. So for parents, we always recommend, uh, again, I want to say I'm not a parent, so I don't want to give too much parenting advice, but go into those interactions open-minded, right? Ready to listen, ready to support, um, and be mindful of the biases that we can put out about romantic relationships or dating like try not to assume what kind of relationship our child would be in try to assume they will or won't be in those relationships um and offer them support no matter what their choice is well i well i was going to ask just sort of this uh, back to this a little bit of this uh the cyber connection to healthy relationships now because i think that you know kids can start dating online you know they can also end relationships online. I mean, so I'm just wondering now what's a little bit different in this healthy relationships around communication. If we could just, I mean, it's kind of not necessarily on our, our list of things here to talk about, but if they're doing a lot of things with texting and some of the other social media platforms, right. And, you know, is that a conversation about what's appropriate and what's not and sharing? And, you know, let's say that you do decide to end a relationship. Like, is it appropriate to end a relationship in a text? Just like, you know, and so like, I feel like there's new dimensions to healthy relationships. I think that it's new because, you know, as a a parent of older, you know, young adults now, um, I, I I feel like I had more control than I could, I could see who they were with, right? Now there's a lot that happens behind the scenes, a lot's happening in relationships with phones, cell phones. So I just wonder, is there a new dimension to these healthy relationships that we talk about and what's appropriate and not appropriate. And, you know, is it a good idea to, you know, start or end relationships in text? Cause what does that set kids up for on the long mm. about uh, be uncomfortable conversations? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't know. No, it's curious. That's a fantastic question, Bethan. I think um, it's a tough thing to think about because technology is moving so fast, right? It went from, from, 
you know, dial up internet when I was a kid to, you know, now where we can be consistently and constantly connected to each other. I, when I was in high school back in the aughts, like it was, there was a lot of like, you know, it's not appropriate to end a relationship via messaging, right? Some folks would say it was kind of, uh, I guess the, the idea was like, it's not the right thing to do. Like you want to respect somebody and show them that you would say it to them. You want to have a hard conversation to their face and things like that. And I do think that's valid. And I, but I want to leave some space for like, this is all a part of the kids, these young folks lives, right? It's it's just so much of what it is, is that experience. And as far as starting and ending relationships, uh, you know, my romantic partner and I have been together for three years and we met online. Um, right. Be- yeah. But, you know, for adults, it's it's one of those things where we separate it out sometimes where we say like, don't do this as a kid, but then once you're an adult, go for it, which creates some dissonance for young people. Right. So with the relationships, we always try to teach like healthy digital boundaries. Your partner doesn't need to be able to go through your phone wherever, right? There should be trust and healthy communication in that space so that they trust you and you trust them. Like uh-huh. they don't have to know your passcode, but it's also okay if they know your passcode. If that's you volunteered that, if you consented to that and wanted to do it that's for healthy, yeah. And then that's for health, for healthy communication, like your partner doesn't need to be blowing up your phone all the time. Or if you can't respond to them for any reason, there shouldn't be any negative feelings for that. There should be a yeah. separation. That's a really good point. I feel like when you talk about this connection, relationships, the cell phone, and uh, mental health, it's that, oh my goodness, they're, or they're ghosting me. Oh my gosh, I didn't get right back to me. Oh my gosh, oh my gosh. Like, or the worst, that, the three little bubbles. And the three they bubbles go away. And they disappear. And, they disappear. and it's like, oh, yeah. That could just mess with you. Mm-hmm. I just feel that that is another dimension of you know when somebody called you and you didn't pick up the house phone that was attached to the kitchen wall mm-hmm. oh well you know that's just the way it worked but now or maybe they like, weren't oh. home but now everyone's home because our phones are in our pockets I know. all the time well i do want to touch on something else you mentioned about um how it i think there's a perception that these romantic relationships that happened years ago were more visible to supervisory adults right to parents mm-hmm. to guardians but i think yeah. maybe some folks uh may have stories not saying myself not implying <laughs> that anybody else might sure my kids do <laughs> where they had romantic partners that maybe they didn't talk to their parents about right where or For maybe true. Yeah, they would go to the park and hang out with some folks. And, you know, I think it's pretty common for youth to sometimes not tell the whole truth. It's just now because of technology, we have like a boogie person, like a, a that, that image of technology as a problem, which it definitely can be. But so often it's just another form of how we hit things as kids. Like we always knew where the creaky step was in the house or how to close the front door without a parent noticing. Um, and the kids just do that now with their phones too. Yeah, good point. So on the other side of it then, so if we know what a healthy relationship kind of looks like, then what should parents keep an eye out for, you know, whether it's in real life observations, maybe if you are, you know, checking your kids' phones or they're sharing with you things that they've been experiencing, um, what would be maybe some red flags of unhealthy relationships that we should keep an eye out for? It's a good question. Uh, so for healthy relationships, we always say are based on equity. The Somebody puts in what they can and gets out what they need. Uh, you know, they're getting the things that they seek for, they want in a relationship. But for an unhealthy relationship, those relationships are often based on an imbalance of power. So one or one partner holding power over the other, whether that's emotional power or physical power, restricting some of the behaviors that someone might have can be seen as like an unhealthy relationship behavior. So when I talk to young people, like if someone's saying, well, I don't want my partner talking to other people, that's a gigantic red flag. Everybody should have friends. Everybody should have other relationships outside of a romantic relationship. Like the texting, if somebody's constantly texting you or constantly wants to know where someone is, that stops someone's freedom of motion, like their ability to go anywhere or be with folks, Uh, even people just being dishonest or holding themselves to different standards. Sometimes we have some weird gender norms about um, how different like men versus women should engage in sexual activity. And some young men will be like, I want to engage in a lot of sexual activity with as many people as I can. And some young women are pressured to do the opposite, right? 
So when we see some of these negative attitudes that folks can have, if it's not addressed early, it can spiral out of control. So if a young person thinks they need to be in charge of their romantic relationship or thinks that they, they need to push physical boundaries to get what they want from a relationship, that's a big red flag, right? If they don't respect a person's boundaries emotionally, physically, sexually, uh, even things like alcohol consumption or drug use, some romantic partners can pressure their partner into engaging in that behavior because they think that's what they want to do, or maybe they think it'll help them in some way. Just anytime a person isn't allowed to thrive, flourish, I always use the word autonomy. Somebody should be able to freely move in between their romantic relationship and not being in it, or like spaces. You're not defined by your romantic relationship in or out of a certain space. So for parents, paying attention to that. If somebody, if your child seems like they're struggling in a romantic relationship, asking them about it. If they seem like they aren't talking to other people in their lives because they're in a romantic relationship or you see them being isolated, that's a big sign that maybe it's something to intervene on. Maybe it's something to talk about. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think, you know, that kind of, and you touched on this a little bit and, you know, when we were mapping out what we wanted to talk about today, and I see this a lot too, um, just in the parenting space as like, different things that come up with parenting people that I follow and stuff is the topic of um, consent. And so, and consent can have to do with my understanding. I know you'll kind of tell us about this is not only when we, I think the traditional term of consent is you think of sexual activity and behaviors, but consent really is a word that can be applied to so many different things. And so the word consent can mean different things at different ages. So Joe, can you explain to us what consent looks like at different ages and also how we can teach our kids about both giving consent to other people for different things and also getting consent from others, whether that's a person in a romantic relationship or a friend, those types of things. (laughs) So consent is like this concept that folks stare at so much and sometimes people get tripped up on, but I always like to simplify it because consent is like the basis of human interaction. It's Friday night, you and your family are hanging out, you don't feel like cooking, you take a poll of the room and say, what do y'all want for dinner? And then you're like, let's get some pizza. You and your family just established consent to eating pizza. And that's awesome. We use consent for everything, whether it's we want to hang out with our friends, whether we want to play a game, whether we don't feel like studying right now, so we're not doing that. That's all navigating consensual situations. The reason it's got such a a big aura around it is Mm -hmm. because of how it's so deeply connected with our boundaries and with sexual activity. Any form of intimate or physical or sexual contact without consent can be a form of violence and sometimes sexual violence. So when we talk about consent at all ages, it starts with the adults in the world. Like we have to model consent to young people. That means asking permission for things. So, hey, is it cool if I give you a hug? Or, hey, you know, do you want a high five? Those little bits of consent help teach young people, you know, it shows them what it looks like, but then also teaches them like your body truly does belong to you. So once children start to like identify their body and spend like embody it more, right? Then we have to start recognizing their boundaries. Like I always think of, I always tell the example of my nephew when he was a little kid, he used to sit on the couch and then I would tickle him and he would laugh and then he would say, stop. And my hands would go right up in the air. And then he would look at me for a minute or a few seconds and then go, okay, go. And then boom, we go back into it and then keep doing that back and forth. Cause we taught, we wanted to teach him that his words mattered. If he said, stop, if he said, no, people would listen to that. So when his grandmother wanted a hug and he was in a surly mood, it's okay that he didn't give his grandmother a hug. You know, she survived incredibly enough without one hug from her grandson. So we always like to make sure that we're helping to enforce boundaries when children set them as well. So listening to them, teaching them like that their bodies belong to them, teaching them proper names for their bodies, because that can be really important too. And then as they get older, start teaching them about boundaries. Like, how do you recognize somebody else's boundaries? Teaching them our own boundaries. Like, hey, I'm on the couch right now. I'm watching TV. You can't climb on my head because that's my personal space bubble. And children understand that really well. And then as they keep getting older, teaching them about like, hey, it seems like your friend maybe didn't, doesn't want to hug or doesn't want to do this or 
as they start to reach like a little bit more maturity, talking about consent to sexual activity, that their body belongs to them, that they only have to, they can only do things that they verbally, soberly, enthusiastically want to do and to recognize that with other people, right? Having those conversations, sometimes conversations about topics that can be uncomfortable like sex and sexuality, we as adults have to get comfortable having those conversations. If we have weirdness around it, then we'll pass that weirdness on to the young people too. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's such a great point um, as parents, as the adults to, to gain that comfort and to, and not, and I don't think people intentionally mean to pass that on, but it's their own experiences, perhaps their own trauma, perhaps just, you know, their own comfort with communicating that, but then not realizing that, that that's just, that's still not a message that you want to, you know, that you want, that you want your, your children, your, you know, adolescents um, to pick up on. And Joe, I just wanted to tell you, this just reminded me of something when you were talking about these boundaries and I was having a conversation with a, with a friend who's a psychologist and uh, he was talking about attending a conference last week and they had lanyards mm-hmm. and it was either you had a red, a yellow or a green card on your lanyard. Cause it was the first in-person yeah. conference. Mm-hmm. And and he said, so the red meant keep your distance six feet. I'm not, I still not, I, I can't do this. Yellow was, I could fist pump. And green was, yeah, you want a hug? And I just remember, I, I thought for one, one yeah. moment, like, oh, that's really brilliant. Yeah. Perhaps we need the red, yellow, green all the time. Yeah. As, as our little things. But obviously we can't do that. But we can in our head establish those are the rules. And I think that... One of the things that we, we want to be careful of as parents is that we don't put kids in situations where they feel guilty or feel bad to have mm-hmm. said no. Mm-hmm. So I oh, I feel so bad if, if, you know, grandma gets upset because I didn't hug her or she didn't hug me. I, gotta, I think we got to be careful about the guilt and sort of carrying that around and wanted to please everybody. And so when you said with your nephew, no means no, stop means stop. Mm-hmm. Don't put any else anything else with that. Mm-hmm. So that kids don't begin that pattern of pleasing, which, as we know, can lead to staying in unhealthy or you know, being in relationships that aren't positive and potentially um, pretty, could be dangerous. Yeah, absolutely. And it also helps us establish for young people that they get to make their own boundaries. Mm-hmm. As they start to get older, they get to decide what that means. And by taking some of the value away from some of it, like if we say like hugging grandma is a good thing, which like in a lot of ways it is, but equally is if you don't want to hug, that's equally as good. So like, I, I always use the example with, with young people. It's like, I have some friends who every time I see them, the first thing we do is a big bear hug. We missed you so much. It was great to, it's great to see you again. And then other friends who I love just as much, who I see them and it's a polite bow or a discreet fist bump. Like yes. they're yes. my close, dear loved friends, but yeah. everybody's got different comfort right. with touch and that's okay. Right. And don't interpret it as anything else. Mm-hmm. Don't exactly. read into any, it, it's okay. That's great. I love that. I think that, with the consent piece, I think that there's also like verbal comments. I think that sometimes whether it's, you think you're just joking or, you know, it's lighthearted humor. I think people, I think in relationships, kids kind of need to learn to read that, Mm -hmm. that they're, if somebody, you know, it's not funny anymore, or they don't appreciate that you're perhaps sharing something that's very private to them or something that's happened to them. It's not your story to tell. I also kind of think we, because of this, Again, I keep going back yeah. to the phone as like mm. the the evil, but it, I know it's not. But because people were unable to read faces or read yes. the room or know your audience, all of those kinds of things, I feel we've lost sensitivity to people's faces and facial expressions. So yes. that I feel like also in relationships, you need to know when it's not appropriate mm-hmm. to continue mm-hmm. to say something. We can talk more about boundaries and like that if you want, because I think that's a big part of consent too, is like, it's both verbal, like what folks can talk about, but recognizing Mm -hmm. when someone is just not comfortable, like how do you, how do young people learn that? And it's like, they have to be able to build that empathy to connect with folks and then be able to understand like whether you're in person or not, the things that you say have an impact. Mm. How do you teach? So how do you teach that then? For us, it's a lot of empathy building. Um, so how do we every- build? How do we build that empathy? Easy. Asking for no. a friend. 
easy. Oh, <laughs> wow. Ask it for, boy, do I wish we had the answer to that one. I feel this has just become such a challenge. I don't know why it's so challenging, though, because I feel like it's role, even if it's role models, like, give me the answer, Joe. Tell me all the answers. Mm. So some of it comes from, I, it comes from the system itself, right? Our education system shifted uh, to focus a lot on testing. So mm-hmm. a lot of schools, you know, all those programs that we that we think are important for children's development sometimes don't get the support and things that they need. Uh, we're definitely changing. Social and emotional learning is, is really picking up in schools. And I really want to commend the school districts in Chester County who are absolutely, absolutely. doing great work for it. But it's... I personally and probably professionally believe that social emotional learning is as important, if not more important than the academic part of yep. education. Amen. Yep. So the empathy building, the identifying emotions, the recognizing ourselves, and then moving that out into self-management by laying that foundation, you have everything a young person needs for surviving the world Mm -hmm. and then you can build the reading writing and arithmetic on top of that so some of the empathy building is just like recognizing feelings in yourself and saying like well what made you feel this way and then when you see feelings in other people so for parents it can be describing their feelings and talking about what triggered those feelings you know today was a really like stressful day of work. So I'm pretty tired. I'm kind of drained. I'm not feeling a hundred percent myself. So I'm sorry. I'm not as fun as I could be or something like that. Right. Putting that into young people so that they can recognize those feelings. And then when we get into technology and boundaries, it's recognizing the, the verbal and the nonverbal mm-hmm. signs that people express. When we teach empathy with technology, we always talk about how, We've all had a bad day before, and we've all had a bad day because somebody said or did something, even one little thing that just knocked it all the way off. Every person has the ability to do that to another person, intentionally and unintentionally. If we don't recognize our friend's feelings, like if we don't notice that, oh, you know, this person's having kind of a down day, maybe I shouldn't goof around too hard. Maybe I should be a little more like serious or not pick on them or whatever. When we notice those feelings, when we see somebody dealing with that, that can be a huge impact because we might've just kept somebody's day pretty okay. Yeah. And with the technology, even if you can't see somebody's face, it's like if you started a rumor, even though you didn't see their face, you can identify with the emotion that somebody might have when they hear those words. The person on the other end of a phone has a name, a face, a heart and feelings just like you. So whatever you say, could absolutely do that same type of thing just as if you said it to their face. See, I think that's such a critical part of healthy relationships. And so my concern has just become, I mean, of course we do, we had the isolation of COVID, you know, pandemic times, um, which I think was has become a challenge for social, emotional and social skills yeah. and interacting with others. Yeah. And then I think the phone has a, allowed us a way to also get kind of lazy with those skills. Mm-hmm. So I, when I think about healthy relationships now, I'm just kind of curious to if that, that piece of it is something we just kind of like now have to purposely, like we have to work on it. To be intentional. A little bit more. Yeah, more intentional, intentional with empathy. Right. Yeah. I, the intentionality is huge. Cause I think, I, th- I think we talked about in the last podcast where it was like, you know, just like all our other safety rules, look both ways. Don't uh, touch the stove. Don't talk to strangers online. Be mindful of what we're saying and doing. Like those are all super important. And I, I do think not just for young people, I've noticed myself included adults in my life who've struggled socially because of the pandemic. And mm-hmm. there's times where we can be, where I felt even more connected to people in my life, even though I couldn't physically be with them and that has a lot of positives and sometimes it has drawbacks too Mm -hmm. so definitely teaching young people that they get to set their own boundaries and decide what is comfortable for them and then helping them enforce them and also recognize those boundaries can change over time and with different people there's some folks you may not mind texting back and forth like a ton maybe there's some people you'd prefer didn't reach out to you all the time that's absolutely okay and helping them navigate that is huge. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, so it's consent and boundaries are BFFs, their partners. Oh, yeah. And, because I, I like feel that. like people are very comfortable yeah. with the word boundaries, 
but really consent and boundaries go hand in hand. So like we can be comfortable with both words and, and, but also knowing what they actually mean. Um, I I like to tell folks that consent is the process in which we open boundaries to others. Oh, that's great. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So we have more to discuss and we are going to get into talking a little bit more about sexual assault awareness month um, and kind of demystifying that and also how it relates to healthy relationships after a quick break. So we'll be right back. Hey, Karen. Oh my gosh, I had so much fun at our Snowball Shuffle Run Walk. Hey Chrissy, it was a blast. Did you know we had over 200 people attend and we raised over $25,000? That's amazing. This success wouldn't have been possible without our sponsors and the support from our community. Yep, a big shout out to Henkin Group for hosting us at Eagle View. We are also thankful for the generosity of our Nor'easter sponsor, Citadel, and our Blizzard sponsor, Brumbaugh Wealth Management. Karen, can you tell me the other sponsors again? There are so many. AGC, Sonara Today, the UPS Store, Bentley, Embark, Craft School Bus, Miller's Insurance Agency, WBYA, Ethos, First Resource Bank, Lionville Natural Pharmacy, Morocco Run Club, State Farm Ed Hart, United Tire, The Wright Agency, Wegmans, and United Way of Chester County for donating event bags. Wow, that's a lot of sponsors. We also have to give a big thank you to the local businesses that donated items for our raffle and team prizes. Yes, all of the money raised will help us continue to fulfill CTC's mission and support all our programs for youth and parents. We also have to thank our team captains, donors, volunteers, and everyone who participated. You could really feel the positive energy and sense of community that day. We hope to see everyone next year at our second Snowball Shuffle. Shuffle, 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 shuffle. Okay, we're back. Um, Joe, we were talking about boundaries um, and consent and what does that look like in healthy relationships. And um, Chrissy mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, um, in April, we're going to um, be recognizing Sexual Assault Awareness Month. And I was wondering if you could just talk about how these things are kind of linked up, because I do think that when folks first hear the word consent, they automatically link it to assault, to sexual assault. But we kind of just talked about there's a continuum about consent, right? And that consent happens in different situations uh, with different people in different ways. And if you could sort of talk about that as an element of um, sexual assault awareness month and tell us a little bit about that month and sort of um, an overview of perhaps, you know, what happens during that time and some of the resources and activities linked to sexual assault awareness month. Absolutely. So when we talk about consent in relationships, like they go hand in hand, I teach young people when we talk about consent Uh, Oftentimes we talk about the concept of sexual harassment prevention. We talk a little bit about flirting because flirting and sexual harassment are behaviors that sometimes look like each other when there's, for sexual harassment, a power imbalance. So somebody might use the language, the ideas of flirting to put somebody down, to hold power over them. And those are things that are without consent. Consent, or when I talk about flirting, flirting is consensual, right? You're flirting with someone, they're returning it back to you, you're chuckling, you're giving them your worst joke and they're cracking up because they really want to be around you. You're expanding your boundaries with them, you know, maybe sitting closer or holding hands or telling them things you might not tell another person. All of those activities are built on consent, those verbal skills, those nonverbal skills, all of that information. When we talk about consent and sexual assault, I think it does sometimes put up a, it raises people's ears sometimes in a negative way. And I think that's a messaging thing that we have as educators around uh, violence kind of done to ourselves, right? Because we all, oftentimes only talked about consent as a as a part of sexual violence, rather than talking about healthy sexuality, rather than talking about healthy interactions. Consent is a part of all healthy interactions, both emotionally, physically, sexually, 
those are very important pieces that like, like I said before, we use it every day. It's just sometimes if when you hear consent, people are like, we're talking about sex now. And now that brings a whole truckload of baggage with it. So when we're talking about relationships, consent, and potential violence, we know that there are behavior, all behaviors fall along a continuum of healthy to unhealthy. And on one end, we have those positive, healthy behaviors. We have, you know, joyous occasions, people flirting, people engaging in healthy activities together. But there's always space and always a possibility of unhealthy things happening. Mm -hmm. Every person who exists has healthy attitudes, behaviors, and beliefs and unhealthy attitudes, behaviors, and beliefs, right? We're not all one thing. It's like risk and protective factors, mm -hmm. right? We try to reduce the impact of some of our unhealthy things, identify them when we can and address them so that they don't become a larger problem in our lives. When it comes to violence, one of the truths of our world that maybe we don't always put into the world is that the people who are closest to us are the ones who are most likely to harm us. That comes from time. You spend the most time with people around you. So they have the most access. Most survivors of sexual assault were assaulted by someone who they knew. Uh, so like a friend, a romantic partner, a family member, a community member, it's very high likelihood that it happened in a relationship. Sometimes it's because we don't always teach the healthiest qualities. So people often make choices that aren't the safest, right? Somebody might pressure a romantic partner for sexual activity because they weren't taught to respect boundaries or because they didn't have the experiences or people in their lives showing them healthy ways. Like we can only see or we can only be what we can see. So if we don't see healthy behaviors around us, like think about like the media, think about like our education system. Sometimes if people are only taught to not engage in sexual activity, the process has already failed because that person's like, but I want to do that. So I'm going to do that. And now they have less access. So in the media, if we see people, I always say like, we see folks on TV who, one minute they're sitting at a bar drinking and the next minute they're in a, like a sex scene, mm -hmm. then children are going to directly and young people and adults are going to associate those two things together, which is a risk enhancing behavior rather than a safety behavior. So when it comes to talking about consent, we do talk about it around violence a lot, but it also, it's from beginning to end of any relationship. Mm -hmm. It's in the fabric of it that we have to teach people like, this is important. This is what we do. Like, I, I always use the example of like, if I'm walking down the street with my partner and I want to hold her hand, I should ask, right? Especially early in a relationship, right? Is this okay? Now, like when a relationship is established, when boundaries are recognized for a long time, I can walk in the apartment and recognize when my partner, like if I'm in trouble, right? Like if the vibe, the air, I can look and see like, I forgot to do something. I know my partner's upset with me, right. but that's, you know, we have to recognize the verbals and nonverbals and then relationships are built. Like it takes, it does take work. And just like building anything else, you have to know all the pieces you're working with to make it happen. So it's getting to know a person, recognizing boundaries and recognizing when maybe now is not a good time for certain behaviors. When you talk about assault, when you talk about sexual assault, um, is it only physical? Are there other characteristics of assault that um, that fit that word that mm. that are dip, that go beyond just being physical? Absolutely. So a part of sexual assault awareness is recognizing just the diversity of acts and things that can be a form of sexual violence. Uh, that's the umbrella term that I often use because it covers the behaviors that we know or think about when we think about like sexual assault in a stereotypical fashion it can be things like date rape um it can be things like um you know the stranger rape that we might see on something like law and order but it also covers there's a continuum mm -hmm. of behaviors where things can be you know sexual harassment which can be comments can be uh different things like that even things like sharing someone's intimate photos without their consent and move into things that really start to become 
sexually violent. So that can be physical contact, even if it's not the most egregious form of violence that you can think of, right? There's a, an image or a stereotype of someone being battered when they're uh, experienced violence, but sexual violence is very intimate. It's parts of, it can include or be around parts of our bodies that are private, that we don't share. So folks who experience sexual violence can look like any person, right? They can come speak to us and say like, I've experienced something, even if there's no outward signs of it. And sexual violence comes from someone forcing a person sometimes to do something mm -hmm. and force can be physical, but it can also be emotional. It can be manipulative. It can be threats or the mm -hmm. uh, implication of a threat. There's so many ways that people, if they do not feel safe to say no, if they don't feel able to say no in a situation and a person isn't looking for a yes, then that increases the risk of a person committing sexual violence. And someone can experience sexual violence even if they consensually started an act and partway through wanted to stop, but their person with them didn't hear them, didn't want to hear them or chose not to stop. Mm -hmm. It's, it's just, it's a very expansive way that folks can experience sexual violence or any this type of violence. And it comes from that power imbalance, someone not having someone taking the power away from a person and not letting them decide what to do with their body. Mm -hmm. We wanted to do, this episode as part of the awareness month. And also because we know, again, as everything, so many things fall under the umbrella of drug and alcohol education and prevention and mental health. Um, but thinking about this, part of it is thinking about, okay, so if we back it up and start at the root cause, ideally you, ideally you yourself would have always had healthy relationships, right? And yeah. ideally your kids will then, when they start to have romantic relationships and also, and even just thinking of friendships too, right? Um, right. Will be able to have the skills to be able to have a healthy relationship. And so I guess the question is, you know, how do we build those skills? Where does that start? Because that's the ideal is that ideally your child will never end up being coming a victim. It could happen, but what are ways that we can protect them from, being sexually assaulted, but also, you know, engaging in behaviors that they might look back and say, like, you know, I did this thing at the time and I, I didn't really want to do it, but I did it anyway. But after the fact, I wish I hadn't. I regret it or, you know, and maybe it. Yeah. So what, how so how, where do we start? I guess you would say. A lot of the conversations that I have with people about preventing sexual violence, there is an element of it that is focused on preventing victimization, but not always preventing yourself from becoming the victim. Like that's kind of our old and still very useful tools. We call them risk reduction strategies. These are things that folks were taught, like, you know, uh, use the buddy system, you know, check the backseat of your car, like always do these things. And those are useful as safety tools, but oftentimes they are taught specifically to young women. Right. Whereas like young men may not get talks about protecting themselves, which can invisibilize some of their victimization, but also minimize the potential of perpetration. So when we talk about prevention, we are always talking about making sure that everybody is recognizing boundaries and everybody is recognizing consent so that we don't push somebody else's boundaries so that we don't potentially perpetrate an act, which is really big. We try to make sure that folks, you know, when we teach parents, we want them to be modeling behaviors, but then also having these hard conversations, right? Having these conversations about sexual activity, about what's appropriate, about how to recognize someone if they want to be engaged in a relationship, when it's okay to say yes to something, when, you know, how do you talk about saying no? We want to teach young people how to have those conversations. Like if we're saying their bodies belong to them, what does that really mean? How do we empower young people to engage in these behaviors? Because we want, just like any person, we want adults to have a healthy sex life if that's what they want. Young people will engage in these behaviors. We have to give them the tools to navigate them safely. So that means keeping lines of communication open, making sure they know about their bodies and know what things do and know, like have a comprehensive understanding of sexuality. Because if we minimize sexuality or don't talk about it, then 
young people are going to explore on their own, and there's plenty of places of bad information. If we let young folks learn from pornography or from the internet or from other kids on the playground, there's going to be a lot of unlearning that has to happen after that. So we reduce the risk of perpetration and victimization by providing more information and more supports and more ability for young people to make their own decisions. Mm-hmm. Um, and so thinking of from, wait, Bethany, what were you going to say? You're going to say something? Well, no, I, I really like Joe's point about the education being a two-way street because I feel that it really has been sort of risk reduction safety for women. You know, do these, do these things to minimize the chance that this could happen to you. And I'm hopeful that uh, that when we start when when we're talking about this as, as educators and in schools and as parents, we're also making sure that we that we wouldn't have this problem if there wasn't a perpetrator. We wouldn't have this problem if there wasn't somebody taking advantage of another person physically or verbally or emotionally. Mm-hmm. So I really do think it's important that the education piece of this on the parent side and the school side mm-hmm. is much more broader conversation. And so I really appreciated that that point that it's not just about risk reduction. Yes, that's helpful, yeah. but that we need to we need to get back to where the source of this is coming from. Got to back the bus up. Yeah, mm-hmm. back it up. That's yeah. a good point. Yeah. So what does this look like by age? So if we're starting with teaching healthy sexuality, you know, at like a little kid, preschool, pre-K, elementary level, what is that? Can you give us some examples kind of at each age what that looks like? Absolutely. So Young children, um, you know, infants, toddlers, as they start to grow and become verbal, uh, they're going to identify their body parts on their own, right? They'll be, you know, grabbing or, you know, showing or doing whatever. Sometimes a kid will rip off their diaper and run around the house. As they become aware and in their bodies, it's important for adults to, you know, model healthy boundaries to teach them the proper names of their body parts, both for like an education sense and for a safety sense, because then children can use proper names when, if something happens to them, they can disclose with a proper name, which is unmistakable. So we should also be teaching them things like private parts for private times, like teaching, recognizing where, you know, what the bathroom door means, what a closed bedroom door can mean, and like demystifying and de-shaming some of those behaviors, right? Everybody has private parts, so making sure that we're being respectful of them, but also not mystifying them and making them something that, like, uh, should be, have, like, shame or anything Have associations it. with it. Mm-hmm. And I think yeah. that's why people can be feel very uncomfortable talking about these things with their kids of all ages, because... Mm-hmm. It's just, it's, you feel there's embarrassment, there's shame associated with it. And also depending on whatever your experience was growing up and mm-hmm. those types of things. Yeah. And I think sometimes there's also a fear of putting an idea in a child's head, right? If you teach them about sexuality, then next thing you know, they're going to be like rushing to engage in it, mm. which is not a hundred percent true. Um, One of the lines we use as far as like understanding sexual reproduction or understanding uh, different types of sexual activity, like intercourse amongst different folks is sometimes people say like eight is great. By eight years old, a child should have a functional understanding of sexual reproduction. Mm -hmm. That doesn't mean you're teaching children like, you know, techniques or teaching them like how to do it, but you're giving them that understanding. Right. Part of that reason is eight years old, a child's in about second grade, they're going to interact with somebody who might teach them about sexuality, whether it's a, you know, an older kid, like Mm -hmm. I can think back in my life, the first people to talk to me about sex were not professionals. Um, They were (laughs) children just like me, which by teaching them that functional understanding, you can help resist those voices that they'll hear in other spaces Mm -hmm. um, because now they have a more authoritative voice or more understood standing voice, all of that. And then as they get older and maybe start to express interest in other people, then we might want to have conversations about all different types of things, be it engaging in sexual activity or masturbation or just anything that comes along with that, having a shame-free conversation teaching them, you know, this is what this can mean. This is what it is for folks. Some adults may feel very uncomfortable with that. But for us, if it's not us having, not you as parents having that conversation, then who is going to? Mm -hmm. Um, 
that's big for me is if you can overcome that discomfort, if you can pick up a book about these things, right? That's important because it helps. And I'll say that I, Bethann, I think you have these, you had in the past these books too. Um, So two books that I did get uh, when one of my kids started and was like, where do babies come from when I was pregnant with their sibling and how are they made and all of those things. So I was like, and we're going to the library. So I got two books that I'll link up in the show notes. It's a series by the same authors um, and they're all illustrated in the first one's I think the first one is for kids from like three to or four to seven and it's called, it's not the stork and it's all about reproduction and how babies are made in that. And then, um, the other one is called, it's so amazing. And it has, you know, all these pictures about puberty and, you know, and sex and intercourse and those types of things. And just a funny story. I don't know if I'll keep this in or not, but I would leave it. So we leave these books around and so just because I'm like, here you go, you can, and at this point now, my older kid, you know, can read and read the book and it's all the info, everything is in there. It's like sex ed 101 in this book. And it, you know, and it's, it's all age appropriate. It's all very factual. And so then he comes out one night and he goes, mommy, I, he, he's like, he's like, you know, he's like, so I was reading the, it's so amazing book. I'm like, uh-huh. He goes, you and Papa's you, we have two kids in our family. And I'm like, "Uh uh-huh. He's like, so you and Papa's, you had sex two times. (laughs) And I'm like, "Uh uh-huh. And he, and I'm like, yep, we did. And he's like, only two times though, right? I'm like, "Mm -hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it's just, it was so funny. And he said some other things, asked me some other questions. And, and he was like, so how would you, (laughs) he opened the book, how would you describe it? Was it fun? Good. That's what he said. And he wrote oh, he's reading the words. Reading the words in that. the book. Holding the book. Mm. And I said, it was nice. Yep. And so it was just like so funny. It's like, okay, go back to bed. Because he goes, I'm going to take my book with me. I'm like, you go ahead. Take your book with you. But I remember it so clear. Because he just, I was just, leave him around. You can read it on your own. But then it's like, if you don't want to talk about it, that's fine. But it's it's all, and if you're a reader, yeah. by that point, most kids can, most kids can read by first, sure. second grade. It does jump off for me because when we talk about teaching healthy sexuality, one of the things we do recommend is kind of like a diversity of what we talk about when we're talking about that. Like the difference between sexual intercourse and where babies come from. Mm -hmm. Like, because for some folks, when they engage in sexual intercourse, there's a possibility of reproduction. But for many folks, there isn't, right? Or not all sexual activity is reproductive sexuality. So sometimes teaching kids like, it can be very heteronormative, we call it, when mm-hmm. if we just talk about sexual reproduction, yep. most of the time people, when they have sex, don't reproduce. The world would be a very different place <laughs> if that weren't the case. <laughs> so like recognizing that like <laughs> sexual activity for folks is is a uh, wide spectrum of behaviors. And yeah. sometimes, yeah. you know, the, <laughs> sorry, Bethann, but it comes back to our phones too. Sometimes it's in person and for some folks it is it's virtual. Right. Yep. Virtual. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So for younger kids, it's using proper names, education, going and getting books, those types of things. What does it look like to keep this conversation going into upper, upper elementary, middle school, high school, um, cause I don't even know what the average age is. I don't know if you even have that stat off the top of your head, Joe, that kids start engaging. I mean, I, I'm obviously it varies. It's a very individual mm-hmm. choice and behavior and things, but yeah, it, it, it depends on where folks are. I think the, some of the research shows that the more comprehensive the sexual education is for a space or for a community, mm-hmm. the higher or the older the age of first engaging in sexual activity okay. because the, the the children are equipped with the knowledge to decide what they do or don't want to do so as they're getting older like once they have the fundamentals right the names the like what these behaviors are then you can you know as they approach puberty like explain how their bodies are changing explain that some people do sexual activity to feel good or for like intimacy or for whatever. Um, And then talking about the things we talked about before, healthy relationships, healthy boundaries, you know, their body belongs to them. They get to decide what they want to do. And then if they look like they're moving into maybe a sexual relationship to talk about 
the safety and healthiness around that. So, you know, if it's a heterosexual interaction, talking about contraception, talking about STIs for all folks in all relationships, uh, talking about but not just the negative stuff, talking about the positives too, right? It can be a healthy stress reliever. It can be a healthy, you know, it's good for mental health in some cases. So providing them with resources to navigate that, talk about what is safe for them and what's not safe for them. That's really just what we try to recommend for folks and, you know, collaborating on it, right? Giving them the space to explore but also making sure they're doing it in an appropriate way for the people around them recognizing their partner's boundaries recognizing their partner's feelings um, and identifying what's healthy and safe for them you know encouraging that communication and uh one site that i i follow them on instagram and i've i've seen some of their videos and things that's where i I get their information from is amaze.org a-m-a-z-e i'll link it up in the show notes they have a ton of great resources for all ages and they have great little videos on for parents and educators too, about just how to have these conversations, kind of talking points and scripts and just, you know, like, I think, what did you say before? Like, if we're weird, we make it weird. So Mm -hmm. yeah. So like how to just kind of, if you're going to it saying like, you know, it's just, this is a part of life. This is a part of relationships. This is a part of, you know, getting older and being a person, being a human, Mm -hmm. it's part of the human experience. So kind of demystifying it. Um, So they do a really good job with a lot of having a lot of like different resources and tools and things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, can you, and we just have in our notes, can you talk a little bit about um, just the media and having this media literacy piece of how that might influence, you know, unhealthy images of, you know, sexual activity and those types of things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When we talk about the media the movies, television, books across the years, right? Not even just recently, have have not always depicted the healthiest images of romantic relationships, of protagonists, of sexual activity, of anything, right? We, just like anything else, like if you saw, I think I, I read one of your blog posts where you're talking about if you see a person in a movie like smoking a big cigar or whatever, yeah. you'd have a conversation like, well, that's, you know, let's talk about tobacco. The same is true when we see sexual activity in the media or romantic activity in the media, how people engage in these relationships, how people engage in these behaviors. Identify where we're seeing people who aren't respecting boundaries or who aren't respecting consent or who maybe are being like just weird or uncool. You as parents can always be like, well, that was weird when this character did that. Like, what do you think of that? Right. Mm-hmm. And, and use that as a springboard for these conversations, mm-hmm. especially as they get older. When we talk about drug and alcohol consumption, sometimes, especially in movies that are like marketed towards teenagers. Yep there's a whole messaging around like linking alcohol consumption and sexual activity. And some of that comes from our society's discomfort with sexuality that like we have to lower our inhibitions in order to have a good time when that's not the safest messaging for young people. So teaching them what we teach is if they choose to engage in either of those activities to separate them, to make sure that they're done in healthy and safe spaces when it's appropriate for those things rather than like, linking them in our minds to think like, if I'm going to have a drink tonight, then that means I'm going to be trying to have sexual activity as well, which is not always the safest. It's a risk enhancing behavior. That's not the safest at any age. I'm sorry. At any age, regardless from, (laughs) from wherever they are for adults, the adults I talk to these days as well. Right. You know, if I know someone who's dating or if I know someone who's, you know, engaging in like trying to get out there in the world. Like these are conversations we have, not just professionally, but with my peers, with my yeah. friends. Like, oh, absolutely. About- yeah. And then also on the converse end, it, it, when you think about coping skills and mm-hmm. people that might've had a negative experience or had some sort of trauma, mm-hmm. they might reach for drug and alcohol to cope yeah. and to absolutely. use it as an escape. So it's all kind it's, it's all linked up under that, uh, that one umbrella. So Joe, for our take action tips, you know, we like to share something that parents can do either one thing for all ages or something that's maybe specific to parents of younger kids and then elementary and then parents of maybe middle and high schoolers. Um, What would be your take action tips around healthy relationships, healthy sexuality for today? 
So for today, I would say uh, for folks who are maybe raising some young kids, you know, uh, start your research, start reading up, start prepping for those conversations and start practicing them, right? Practice with your co-parent, practice with your friends, uh, practice with people around you and, and build up that network of support of y'all having these conversations. The more you say the words, the less they will feel weird when you hit the stage and talk to your kids about it. If your children are getting older, middle and high school, it's never too late to have the to increase the number of conversations you're having. Uh, it's it just keep talking to them about stuff and and check in. Sometimes it's like, hey, are you interested in dating? Is that something that you're thinking about? Are your friends doing this? Like, take a survey. Like, learn what's going on around. Like, or continue to learn, I should say, what's going around on around your children, so that you can be a part of those if they do choose to do that. Right? Dances happen sometimes. I think right. Prom, zuh, I guess happen. Uh, so it's always good to ask. Like. Not in a pressuring way, not in a like, who you're going to ask, but more like, uh, you know, is this something you're thinking about? Is this something you're interested in? Like, that way you can just get an idea. And then if it's something they're interested in, have those conversations and, and be honest when you don't know something. It's okay to tell anybody, I'm actually not sure, because there's plenty of resources in your community who want to help you learn and help out with that. Would you also say, just as an aside, I just thought of this, because um, something that we didn't say yet, but I know I'm sure that we probably meant to, was if your child is in a dating relationship with somebody, make an effort to know the parents of that kid, same as you would for the friends, and yeah. also, you know, just really try to get to know the parents and just kind of have those connections and things. Yeah, I'd say do your best, right? Because especially if they're in the same school as your child or in the same district, then that's definitely realistic. If they're like, you know, sometimes it's family friends or neighborhood folks that you might see that relationship happening. Definitely try and do that. If it's more distance, maybe they met somebody from a town over or something, you know, especially in their teenage years, they might be driving to different places. Yeah. Do your best, right? To try and meet folks, to try and meet parents if you can, but like, don't beat yourself up if there's, if it's, if the kid's difficult, right? Yeah. So Joe, uh, as we kind of pull everything together here from our conversation today, can you tell us a little bit about what Crime Victims Center has planned for April for Sexual um, Assault Awareness Month? And then also where folks can, as you mentioned, find resources, find you, um, things that can help them with these conversations. Yeah, definitely. April is a big month for Crime Victim Center because of Sexual Assault Awareness Month. Um, we shorten it to SAM, which makes it a lot easier for everybody, but SAM has its roots like all the way back in the civil rights movement where activists and suffragists were pushing for uh, us to recognize and to address sexual violence that were happening to people in our community. Uh, so even some of the famous names that you heard of in civil rights, like Rosa Parks, were fighting for issues around sexual violence as aware or sexual violence, sexual violence as well. So month April became the month where you know rape crisis centers like Crime Victim Centers started to really push for awareness, like doing events like Take Back the Nights, doing different walks and marches to really raise the general community's awareness that these issues, like this issue of sexual violence is here in our community. It happens to people around us. And the only way we can talk, talk about stopping it is by working together and pulling it out of the darkness. So we do a lot of work to raise that awareness. Different towns around Chester County, you'll see some teal ribbons. Teal is the color of sexual assault awareness. So they'll be hanging up in different boroughs, different spaces with some information on them you can check out. Uh, April 6th is the Sexual Assault Awareness Month's Day of Action, where we encourage folks to talk to each other, talk to their families, or, you know, talk to people of importance in their lives, you know, talk to your schools about what they can do to make sure that their students are learning about sexual violence prevention, are building safer and healthier communities. Our theme for Sam this year is we can build safe online spaces because the internet is a place where sexual violence has roots, right? People online can be inappropriate. They can share images. They can do things that are harmful to each other. Uh, April 27th is Denim Day, which is a campaign that started uh, kind of in response to a 
an act of sexual violence that occurred. Uh, an Italian Supreme Court uh, years ago ruled that a victim was uh, was not a victim of sexual violence because her genes were so tight that they couldn't have come off without help. So the following day, the Italian parliament all showed up wearing jeans in protest to this idea that this person hadn't been harmed. And uh, the organization Pizza Over Violence developed it into a response to this. So on April 27th, wow. folks wear denim, be it jeans, be jackets, be anything you like as a way of kind of showing our support for survivors, for showing our support for people who have experienced this type of violence. Wow. Um, so we're hoping to have some programming go out so you can keep an eye on CBC's Facebook and Instagram, um, as well as our uh, our website. In the month of May, we have our virtual race, uh, Chester County Race Against Violence. It's just a nice little event that we do virtually now every year. Uh, it's, it's, it's a pay what you want model. So I took mm -hmm. that from my punk rock roots. And if somebody pays more than $10, they will get a little running fanny pack type thing, which yeah. is pretty mm -hmm. dope. Yeah. Um, so you can register for that on our website, which uh, is cvcfcc.org. And I'll have that in the, or I guess Chrissy will have that in the show notes, not yep. me. Yep. <laughs> yep. I also want to encourage folks to check out the National Sexual Violence Resource Center's website as they're the ones who sort of do all this work for Sexual Assault Awareness Month. They, they come up with the campaign and put a lot of stuff out there and we're a part of their work. And I also have a space for parents of uh, young children. It's called Safe Secure Kids, which was created by our funders, the Pennsylvania Coalition Against Rape, to kind of help parents around these topics. So it's another resource that um, I'll make sure that I pass along so that folks can use it to help out where they might need support. I, I think also just as a resource uh, is CVC. Our hotlines are always available if anyone experiences harm or knows someone who has, or even just needs to talk about something that has happened, we are constantly a resource for Chester County. No matter where you are, we wanna help you out in some kind of way. So please feel free to connect with us um, by the hotlines or by reaching out to us at our office. And if you have an interest in setting up a program, I always tell folks I will go to schools, I will go to after school groups, I will show up to book clubs. If people wanna talk about these issues, then people at CVC wanna be a part of that. That's great. That's great. Thank you. I love this conversation. Mm -hmm. I have all lots of to-dos, lots of things to keep talking, right? Oh, my gosh. Well, thank you, everyone, for joining us today. And please make sure to check the show notes for links to everything that we talked about. Um, and also be sure to click subscribe or follow in your podcast app that you're listening to us in so that you get our new episodes that come out every other Monday right away. Um, and if you are able to leave us a review somewhere, we would very much appreciate it so that other parents can find us. Um, so thanks, Joe, for coming back. Round two, another Thank great you. conversation. Thank you for having me. I can't wait for next time. Yeah, yeah. we will talk to you all soon. Thanks. Thanks. Bye. Take care. Bye.